0: One of the things we love about being copywriters is that we're not just hired to make our client's words sound good, we're hired to solve problems. But here's the thing, clients don't always understand that that's what they're asking us to do. They come to us with projects and ask things like, can you write my website or can you help with a case study or a sales page? What they're really asking for is help solving a bigger problem. Help me sound professional, or help me prove that I can do what I say I can do, or help me sell more products and make more money. The more we sell ourselves as experts in solving complex marketing problems, the more we're able to work with great clients and earn more money. Today's guest for the Copywriter Club podcast is John Mulry. John is the Director of Marketing for MFA. That's Todd Brown's company, and he is focused on solving very complex marketing problems for Todd and for Todd's clients what he shared in this interview may give you some ideas on how to do that for your own clients and in your own business. But before we get to our interview with John, good news, Kira's back. Hey, Kira.
1: Hi. Hey, Rob. Good to be back.
0: Yeah. So where have you been? It's been a
1: while. (laughs) I've enjoyed the podcast interviews while I was away where every intro, I feel like you were like, and Kira's still on maternity leave. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like towards the end, it sounded like a... Maybe there was a little bit more frustration in that of, over the last few episodes, but I'm, back. I'm I don't, back.
0: I don't think I was frustrated. If it <laughs> sounded that way, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> Maybe it was just to me. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to be back on the podcast. I had a fun time listening to other other copywriters speak on the podcast and add their commentary and their thoughts. I think it's strengthened the podcast. So I feel like you don't really need me here. I'm just... <laughs> I'm just going to leave right now. I don't think you leave, need me here at all.
0: We definitely had more than one person offer to take your place uh, in the future. Should you decide to make maternity leave permanent? So tell who me knows? who
1: they are. I will fight them.
0: <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hunt see them that down. for off. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> Bob, how do you feel like running the show over the last few months? I guess, what is your biggest takeaway from running the show sans Kara, and building the show in a new way?
0: Uh, it's uh, it's been fun. Obviously, I missed your insightful question asking when I'm doing you know interviews on my own, like the one that we did today that we're going to be doing here in just a second. You know, it's just me and John talking. Um, but it's also fun to get insights from other people beyond you and me. I, I think that you and I have said a lot of things. We kind of repeat ourselves sometimes. You know, we've, there's only so many ways that we think about niching or experiences that we have, and so it's been fun adding some additional voices. And I think moving forward that's something that we're going to continue to do. So it won't always be you and me jumping in here and making comments, but it might be you and someone else or me and someone else. And sometimes it'll be you and me and we'll just see how it all kind of uh, moves forward. So it'll be a lot of fun.
1: Okay. Sounds good. So let's jump in. Uh, to all the serious stuff. <laughs> like this podcast is sponsored by the copywriter Think Tank. Uh, that's our mastermind for copywriters and other marketers who want to do more in their businesses. Uh, maybe like creating a new revenue stream um or stepping on stage or creating a new product, podcast, uh, video channel. Maybe you want to build an agency or a product company. Maybe you want to become the best known copywriter in your niche. Uh, The person high paying clients call because you're the name everyone in your industry knows. That's the kind of thing we help copywriters do in the think tank to learn more, visit copywriterthinktank.com.
0: Okay. So as we usually do, let's kick this episode off with John's story. It gets a little crazy at times. So I think you guys are going to like listening to what John has to share about becoming a marketing uh, marketing strategist.
2: It's a funny story. Is that it? It all kind of stems from me being in a similar position that people be in when they when they start their own business, they they start their own venture, side hustle, or whatever it may be. So I was I come back from um, a year in South America. So originally I was in the corporate finance world, and and maybe we can dive into South America in a in a bit. But I I was originally in corporate finance, and I completely hated it. It was working, you know, the typical nine to five for somebody else, and it was just. I was miserable, I was depressed, I was miserable, I was drinking um, more often than not, and it was just something had to happen, so I decided to head off to South America with my friend at the time who was in London, and the two of us went to South America and volunteered for the year and travelled around for the year, and while I was away over there, I changed an awful lot, um, specifically from a health and fitness point of view. And I kind of made the decision that when I would eventually come back to Ireland, that I was going to go up on my own in some way, shape, or form. So when I got back to Ireland, I started putting plans into place to start my own fitness business and personal training business because I changed so much from a fitness point of view and a health point of view, and I had a big shift from unhealthy drinking the whole time to actually looking after myself and seeing the results from that. So I decided to I got got qualified and everything else and did you know did the courses and stuff and and started my own business and uh, quickly realized that it wasn't just a case of opening up the doors and people would flood in the door you actually had to do stuff to get people in the door and this was just completely new to me i was i was sure cuz i was good at what i did and i got results um i that's enough but it, obviously we know that it's not we have to do a lot more to to get our names out there to get people in the door and so on and so forth so i started studying And looking into, well, first of all, before I started studying, I started looking into different ways to market myself. And what I initially started doing was blogging. So it's just basically telling my story online. I started a really simple and ugly WordPress blog, just kind of blogging articles and stuff that was interesting to me and stuff like that. And while I was doing that, I started to kind of get a little, trying to find out, well, how how can I get more blog visitors? What can I do to get more people to the website and so on and so forth? And started to kind of fall into this world of marketing. And from there, it like kind of snowballed and got sucked into a lot of different areas. But specifically, the, the idea of direct response marketing really hit home with me is because if I do X, I will get Y. Now, Y may be a good result or a bad result, but at least I'll know what that result is. So then from there, I came across a guy called um, Dan Kennedy, which I'm sure um, everybody is familiar with. And I just fell enough with his very direct approach, no nonsense approach, no BS approach. And... I started to listen to a lot what he was saying, but also started to do what he was saying to do as well, which I feel, and I'm sure you'll agree, that so many people, they, they do listen to a lot of things and they do follow a lot of things, but the, the implementation side of things can be some, sometimes let them down. And one of the things that I learned from Dan initially was if you want to um, get results in your market, whether it's a local market or not, you need to stand out. And he himself, he used his books to stand out. So I was like, well, if if it works for Dan, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna create a. nobody in my market at the time locally had their own book, no uh, book or a a tool like that that they could use to to get clients for themselves. So I said, right, I'm gonna start working on my own book. And I remember I arrived home one day from the office to to Jess, and like Jess is a journalist. Jess is an amazing editor, amazing writer. And I said, I'm gonna write a book, and it was never on the radar at all. And she was like, what? I was like, yeah, and I'm going to have it done by the end of the month. And she was like, what? And so I locked myself in and I just started documenting everything that i went through and the lessons that I've learned and so on and so forth. And then I had this rough manuscript and I was like, well, I really want to do the best I can with this. So I was like, well, I've learned so much from Dan. I wonder would he be interested in, uh, in hearing about this and hearing about what I've been doing, learning from his stuff. So I'd sent emails to the info at gkic.com, emails to Dan, and it was like, well, Dan doesn't take emails. You have to send faxes. So I got the fax number after doing a bit of digging. I was faxing his assistant and not getting responses. I'd sent a letter, a couple of letters, and didn't get any responses. So then I was like, okay, well, I need to be creative. I need to stand out like Dan says. So I got my manuscript printed up, and I also went to a local... um, a local place where I was living in Galway that did do kind of a heritage and to do um, meanings of names and surnames and stuff like that. So obviously Kennedy was an Irish surname. So I got up a scroll done up with the meaning of the word of the, the surname Kennedy. And it actually stems from the, the first King of Ireland. Like it, his heritage stems from there. So I got that scroll done up and I FedEx my manuscript and the the scroll of Kennedy to, directly to well, who I thought was Dan, but it was actually his assistant. And his assistant then passed it on to him. And uh, within about, I think within a week, I had a rushed FedEx letter back to me saying, you've got my attention now, Mr. And It was from Dan. And like eventually what happened is then they invited me over to Texas to, to meet GKAC, meet the team. And we had like discussions of what we were doing. And eventually I, I partnered with GTAC to to start bringing direct response marketing to Ireland because While this was happening, I started to realize that as I was getting more clients and getting really good at getting clients, I was actually more excited about getting the clients than I was actually servicing the clients from a fitness point of view. And that's when I realized that my main, my true passion wasn't necessarily the fitness. My true passion was helping people still, but actually helping people through marketing, helping people get better results for their own businesses and for their own marketing. Because the majority of my clients had actually... um, were that I, I naturally attracted with my own messaging and my own marketing, they were all professionals. They were all self-employed people in my local area. And I was charging a premium, much, much higher prices than than everybody else. And from there, it was like, well, it's a natural progression. So when I launched the the first book, Your Elephants Under Threat, and that's when I met that transition. And when about six months later, then I, I met the kind of I launched the official uh, direct response marketing and GKIC. Brand in um, in Ireland and everything kind of just snowballed from there. Then okay, that uh, yeah, that's an am- amazing
0: story. And I, I I know you sort of especially the year in South America, you kind of glossed over a lot of the experience that you had there. You wrote about it in your book, uh, obviously. And so if you know if anybody picks up the uh, the book, they'll get that. But um, let's go back to that um, before we you know come back to all of the marketing stuff. Um, you know, going from stressed out, you know, working in corporate finance to then coming home and being a fitness expert obviously amazing transition what are just a couple of the highlights from from that year that made you come to that realization like i'm i'm doing the wrong thing and this is what i want to do moving forward
2: the big thing is really for me is that the main places we were volunteering when we initially we we were volunteering in ecuador in in like an animal refuge basically just in the middle of the jungle essentially just mining monkeys and and playing with monkeys and playing with different animals and making sure they were safe and then they be re-released into the wild. But the, the second place where we volunteered was in a place called Pisco in Peru. And Pisco was destroyed by an earthquake two years before we were arrived. And one of the local guys there set up this um, uh, volunteer center called Pisco Sin Fronteras. And essentially what it was it was just helping the locals get back on their feet because so many of the locals had lost their families, they'd lost their homes, they'd lost their livelihoods and everything else. So we, we came across this place and we said, we'd love to go volunteering there. And on the way down um, to, we had just finished doing the, the Inca Trail. So we just finished doing the Inca Trail and on the way from uh, Cusco, which was the, the nearest place to the Inca Trail, uh, to Pisco, we were getting a bus. I think it was going to be, I can't remember exactly, but it was roughly going to be, say like a 16 hour bus ride, maybe, maybe more, maybe maybe slightly less. And my backpack on the way, got stolen. So everything I'd owned um, was was stolen. So all I had left was my phone, my passport and my wallet. Everything else that I built up and brought with me the previous, um, I think it was there about three months at this stage, was just completely gone. And when I arrived to Pisco, the, that, that night we just kind of settled in the place where we we're going volunteering. The next morning we had to stand up and introduce ourselves and tell something interesting about ourselves. So I stood up and said, hi, my name is John. And I'm from Ireland and everything I own was stolen yesterday. And everyone kind of just went, What? And uh from there, like the about after the breakfast and everything else, uh, we I was shown to where we were going to be sleeping and where what we're gonna be doing initially. And uh everybody just started coming around. Someone gave me a backpack, and everybody started donating like pieces of clothing, pieces of stuff to help me. Like I literally I didn't have a toothbrush, I didn't have anything. So and that was like that—that that initial kindness from strangers was just huge to me. And then over the, 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 like, we were supposed to stay a week. We ended up staying a, I think, twelve weeks initially. We went back again eventually, but twelve weeks initially. And just seeing people who literally had nothing, like these people who their lives were absolutely destroyed, smiling every single day, being happy to see us help them every single day. That kind of reward that I was getting, and it might sound a little bit selfish, but you couldn't put a price on, on that feeling that you get when you help someone that that truly, truly needed it. And it wasn't about money because there was no exchange of money. It wasn't about money at all. Whereas previously, I was very much in the finance world. I was like, I'm going to work in this place initially to build up some experience. And I'll move to London and do investment banking and make loads of money and blah, 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 the Typical, the typical kind of finance thinking. Whereas over there, it was like money never entered my mind at all. It was all helping people. And that that just kind of snowballed and snowballed and snowballed when it was over there. And like that's that was probably one of the main experiences that I had, a lot along with some some crazy stuff that happened as well. But um initially that was that that seeing people who who were so happy, yet they had absolutely nothing really, really hit home with me and, and like it hit it hit hard and it definitely affected me in, in the best way possible.
0: Mention other crazy stuff. I mean, obviously, getting your backpack stolen is pretty crazy. But uh, one more crazy thing. What uh, what stands out to you there?
2: Um, th- there was a there was a, a period of time in like obviously I did ayahuasca in the middle of the Amazon jungle, and that had a massive impact on me as well. i if I can, I'll say I'll mention two crazy things because okay. I think yeah, yeah. they'll be good. So definitely the uh, ayahuasca experience was um was surreal. And I'd never taken like, psychedelic drugs or anything like that before. I did a little bit of crazy things, but in my own time with, with like a lot of alcohol and stuff like that, but never took any kind of psychedelics or anything like that. But in the Amazon jungle, um, we arrived in a place called iquitos which is, if I'm, if my facts are correct, it's the, one of the largest cities in the world that can only be, that you can only get there via plane or a boat. And we took, we took a three day river boat to To get there, and it was like amazing, like you know, going up the, the Amazon River for three days, and sleeping in a hammock with about five or six hundred people underneath the boat, and it was amazing. just like all all we were like, we were, I think we were the only foreigners there. There was about six of us, and all the rest were just locals traveling to to Quito to go to work and stuff like that. And you'd get three meals a day. You'd get kind of like a sloppy porridge in the morning. You'd get a like a sloppy stew in the afternoon. And you'd maybe get like a kind of crushed up plantains, which are kind of like bananas in the evening and maybe a bit of fruit or something like that. So there was no kind of like a flash dining or anything like that. <laughs> but once we got to Iquitos, we um, we went on the look for somewhere to do this ayahuasca. So we found these guys and they, they kind of seemed dodgy and that whole thing, would have, if, it, if it seems dodgy, if, if you go with your gut, you should have. But we said we'd give them the money anyways and they put us in this kind of a cabin and they met us drink this black stuff from from a plastic bottle, and they gave us each a roll of toilet paper, and then they left. And then, like within about an hour, every one of us were getting sick, and every one of us were using the toilet paper. I won't exactly say exactly what we were doing, but we were using the toilet paper enough said. Yeah. and uh, it was horrible. It was just horrible. We were like, this this is just horrible. So we went back to after after a few hours, we went back to where we were staying, and we we're like, that was surely that wasn't what it was supposed to be. It was just a, a horrible, horrible experience. So we met a local and we explained to him what happened, and he was like, "Oh yeah, you you got scammed." I mean, there's if you want to genuinely do the ayahuasca experience, I'll, bring, I'll show you how, I'll show you where you can do it. So he brought us to another guy, and the next day we got a we got a kind of like a a, a mini um like like half canoe half boat, and we went up like really really kind of slim rivers on the Amazon. And we eventually got to to this little kind of what was essentially a mini village or a village or a town in the middle of nowhere. And we met a, we met our, we met our, like our, the the guy that was going to help us do the ayahuasca and it was the the shaman. And we met him and he, first of all, he brought us through the jungle and he showed us the jungle and he showed us the, where he's going to be, you know, getting the ayahuasca from a a particular tree and he's going to be mixing it with with something else. And like, it was a real experience. And then that not that evening we did the actual ayahuasca ritual and it was completely different. It was just like it was an actual ritual where we were all around in a circle. We all tasted a little bit and went around and we had some more and then we had different experiences and then we went off on our we went off. We got back into our canoe, went back to where the the the, um, the guide was living, and we all kind of just had our experiences. And my experience was was like so. On point, it was essentially me, like my whole experience, there was so many things that happened that night, but the the crux of it was me, essentially me, constantly trying to grab things, but constantly not being just, say, that much away from being able to grab it or further away, not being able to reach what I wanted to reach. And the meaning I took from that right or wrong was that I was trying to reach for things that weren't for me. I was trying to grab onto things that weren't for me and I needed to change something because what I was reaching for wasn't meant for me. I needed to start going after things that were meant for me. And that was like that shift in thinking, that shift in perspective afterwards was huge because that helped me change my direction, helped me take what i learned from, you know, the volunteering and helping people to like, maybe this is what my focus should be. Maybe I should focus less on trying to help myself and more on helping others. And um, so that was definitely a, a surreal experience. And the second one, which for time purposes, I'll tell it as quickly as I can, was this seven day period in Brazil where it was just mayhem. In seven days, I got essentially kind of kidnapped, but not really kidnapped. I got um, beaten by the most corrupt policemen in Brazil and threatened with deportation. And I got air rescued by helicopter in uh, Rio in the Copacabana Beach over in in a period of about five to seven days. It was just surreal. I mean, you that, could probably write a book and just, just yeah, I was going to say that, that, that should be,
0: a, that should be its own book. That sounds like a thriller right there. So, um, and, and I, if I remember right, cause I, I read, uh, I read the first book, um, you, you
2: barely mention that in your book, uh, if I, if I remember right. Yeah. So. so essentially, essentially what happened, it was, oh, we had friends that we, from, from, from home, from Ireland that we, that we went to Brazil to meet and we hadn't myself and the the guy I was volunteering with because we were doing so much volunteering, we weren't doing a lot of drinking. Um, but the, these friends that we met were like were essentially our drinking buddies from back home. So we went on a major bender, and unfortunately, myself and my 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 friend Crunchies, we got extremely extremely drunk, and the our friends that we met just kind of disappeared and left us in the middle of nowhere, and we didn't know what was going on. So we we hailed down a taxi, and we said to the taxi driver, um. We in our broken Spanish, obviously, Brazilians speak Portuguese. and We said what we thought was bring us to the bring us to our our hotel. And when we get to the hotel, we'll give you the money to pay for the cab. And what he, he took that up was we're not paying for the cab. Screw you. So he drove us to a police station and he told obviously told them that these guys are trying to, you know, skip the cab or whatever the case is. And we were arrested. We were put into separate cells and we were beaten on the hour every hour until the next morning. And we were then brought to a doctor who signed off on the wounds that we had, which were pretty serious, that they were inflicted on us before they actually picked us up. And then we were brought to Rio de Janeiro airport, handcuffed together, dragged through the airport to be threatened with deportation. And then eventually the the kind of the, what I can only assume is like the, the higher up police, like national police, we were in their offices and we were explaining what happened and they were so apologetic. They were like, there's no, this is a complete like farce and this should have never happened. And, you know, they were so nice to us and so kind to us. It was like, look, you're not going to be deported. You're not we're going to sort this out. But essentially what happened in the end was they said was like, at the end of the day, it's your word against the police's word and you're not going to win. So we have to do what we have to do, but we'll try and be as fair as possible to you. And the fairest thing we can do is give you seven days to leave Brazil. And you have to leave Brazil. And if you ever come back to Brazil, you have to pay a fine. And we're so sorry about that, but that's just the way it is. So we went back to where we were staying in Copacabana. And my crunchy said, I'm going up to Sugarloaf Mountain. And I was like, the last thing I want to see is Sugarloaf Mountain. I'm going to go down to the beach. And I went down to the beach. I said, I'm going to go into the water and just kind of try to clear my head. And I'm not a good swimmer. And like I didn't notice, but the, the waves in Copacabana Beach are, are like ridiculously dangerous. And small little currents can suck you out. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was I was in water up to my like barely past my ankles. And the next thing I was in water that was way above my head. And I couldn't, I didn't know what was going on. And I saw surf, a surfer came over to me, which is kind of shows you how far I was taken out. And he gave me a surfboard and he started to signal to the lifeguards, two lifeguards came out and they couldn't bring me in because the waves were so tough. So one of them left and the other guy stayed with me signaling for a helicopter. And about 40 minutes later, a helicopter came with a big fishing net scooped me out of the water and then dropped me on the, the side of the beach. And the guy just goes, You okay? And I was like, Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And he's like, Okay, we'll see you. Bye. And then they just took off. And like <laughs> I had to do a walk of shame from where they dropped me back to the hotel with loads and loads of people just cheering me and jeering me. And like it was, it was very, very embarrassing. But it was also it like it, it's looking back now, it was like it was just so surreal and so crazy. And it does make for one one good story as well, but it was it was a crazy experience. You you need so, to have grandkids just so
0: you can tell these stories uh, to them because yeah are kind of kind of nuts, um, okay so so uh, we could we could talk I'm guessing for hours uh, about that experience but let's get back to the, the marketing stuff that's kind of where we like to focus um, you came back. Uh, you know, start focusing on, on growing. Um, you've also, I mean, building your own authority, not just with Dan, but you know, you've done other things as well. Uh, I know you've got several book funnels that you use at certain points to bring in clients. We talked just a little bit more about how um, what you were doing to get noticed and to build your authority as a marketing expert.
2: Yeah. So the two things that, that I really kind of focused on was, was massive value upfront, um, regardless of what happens. So regardless of if I get the sale or if I don't get the sale, if I get the client, if I don't get the client, and then from there for me it was about acquisition and then ascension. So I would I use things like you know digital digital products like say you know so if it's a digital course or something like that on on something like Facebook ads or if it's a a book or a physical book, so a combination of digital products and. Low, low-priced, low-end, um, or not low-end, but low-priced front-end offers like a like a free plus shipping book or or a book, and then from there, I would um, you know ascend a certain percentage of those people into clients. So I would give away my books for free, just paying people just had to pay the shipping and handling, and then from there, I would um, when I send out my books, what I was doing initially was I would send out my books. Um, everyone who bought it would get a signed copy of the book and a letter personalized to them and like that worked extremely well so say for example um what I used to do is I used to because it was just myself and my business I didn't have a, a massive team I didn't have and part of my USP at the time was that when you when you when you work with me you don't get my team of agencies you don't get my hired help you get me and my expertise and my knowledge on your business as if we're partners so I, I didn't need a lot of clients to 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 run the business that I wanted to run I would have a certain amount of clients and then I would essentially stop my my marketing to a point now not completely but I would essentially stop my marketing and if, if a client's project finished or if a client left for some reason I would essentially run some ads to drive some book buyers and I knew that out of every hundred books books that I would give away but with what I was doing on the back end that I would generate a certain amount of consultations, and I knew from there, but the base how I was doing those consultations and who I was attracting that I would, I would more often than not get a handful of clients out of that, which would help me bring myself back up to where I wanted to be from my client book level. That makes sense.
0: No, yeah, totally makes sense. So if if I were going to copy that kind of an approach to yeah. marketing, um, the key is offering big value up front. So that is the book, or that is the the training, or something like that. Or would you do something? Even beyond that, before somebody's actually purchasing uh, a product from you,
2: I was doing like I, I was I was I kind of um, still did a lot of blogging from that like writing essentially essentially content marketing and then driving to the book. But then as I started to get more and more um, aggressive with my advertising, I was just essentially using ads to drive people to my to my books. Or I also did some at the time as well while I was um, like expanding my network and expanding my market. I did a few online launches with some different marketers, so I launched some of my programs through through like affiliate launches and stuff like that, which obviously brought in a a, a decent amount of um, you know leads and buyers, which I then went on to various coaching programs and client programs from there. But essentially, what I was doing was value upfront and making a front end sale, so like acquiring a customer, and then what made me different from just the sending them to your back end offer was I went heavy on the personalization. So I went heavy on the, when they got the book, the book was signed to them. So when Rob gets the book, Rob gets the books saying, Hey Rob, uh, thanks so much for getting the book. Uh, check out page 53. I think it'll be relevant for your business. And then like that, that creates a connection that just can't be created by a fulfillment company. So it took a lot of extra work, but like that work, when you're not looking for thousands of clients, that work is well worth put in because like a potential client to me was worth, you know, many, many thousands. So, um, and a lifetime, if they stayed like for a long, long time, they're worth, you know, tens of that. So um, it was well worth to me in my mind, putting in the extra effort to get the, the the extra reward. And I think that's something that so many people these days, because of automation, because of the, because of digital marketing is so easy and we can automate so many different things. People want to remove the personal from their business when essentially people do business with people not an automation they don't do it with an autoresponder they do with the person who's sending it so why not bridge that gap was my thinking you know, as you created all of these funnels,
0: was there um, a particular topic that tended to resonate more with clients than others? So I, I I know you had a book funnel for your Elephants Under Attack book, which tells your story and the basics of direct marketing. I know um, you did a book with Dan Kennedy on direct response marketing. You did a book on authority uh, and basically writing books. I think there's at least one or two others uh, out there. Was like which of those resonated the most with the audience that you were that you were trying to attract?
2: Um some of them work better than others. Um and some of them were done for from different reasons than the others. So, say for example, the book on authority and everything else, that that book was um specifically created to feed people into my expert authority formula um like online course. So that was the only reason was there is because I didn't want to go out and sell a like a thousand dollar, two thousand dollar course straight up. I wanted to, you know, feed the pipeline for that by by giving a condensed version of of essentially what was in the course away on a free play shipping and then I send them up if that was relevant. The your elephants under threat was probably in terms of building a connection with people, that that probably brought in the, the most connection because it was so personal and it was so um it was so kind of unique to me versus like there there are many books out there on say email marketing there are many books out there on building authority and so on and so forth and direct response marketing whereas the your elephants under threat was more personal which probably drove home more connection which made to a lot more clients coming from that i'd say yeah so if i were going
0: to copy that in my business going personal would probably be a, a pretty good way to do that okay um Let's talk about your process for writing books. Uh, you mentioned to me when we were talking a couple of months ago that you, you know, kind of have a way where you get a book done very quickly. Obviously, you wrote your first book in less than a month. Um, but I, if I remember correctly, you were telling me you could actually do it in a weekend or so. Tell us about that process and, and how you produce. Not, I mean, these aren't necessarily just skinny books, you know, 70 or 80 pages. You know, sometimes they're two or 300 pages. Like how do you produce, produce that in so little time?
2: Yeah, so the first one was very much blunt force. And that's what I actually called it was just like the blunt force method, whereas you're essentially locking yourself away if you have the, the capacity just to get it done. And like, not everybody can do that. Not everybody has the, the focus to do it. And to be honest, I don't even know if I'd have to focus myself to do it now, to just to kind of lock myself away for that length of time. But back then, I had no other option. I had no other idea. It was my only thing I was focusing on because I was kind of just starting it out. And I didn't have... As, as many commitments as I, as I might have now, say. But then in terms of the, my process for getting a book done extremely fast, it's essentially what we do is we would take some of your, your best content that's not in a book format, not in written format. So say, for example, I had a two-hour kind of marketing masterclass that I had, which is like obviously two hours, 120 minutes. When you actually transcribe something like that, and that like say transcribing, it will be the first stage you end up with about 150 pages of like a lot of jumbled kind of stuff. So it's obviously, it's all over the place. So you would, t- so essentially what we do is say, say like for my book, the truth say I had a two hour masterclass and I had lots of other supplemental training. So what I did is essentially was I took some of my video content, took some of my video material that I had and, and other material that I had. And I essentially fleshed those out into the book and it could be done relatively quickly. I mean, like the, when I initially, the, the initial part of the truth, when I initially got it done out, it was, I think it was 109 pages. And then I fleshed that out with lots of extra training, lots of extra content into something like, it's, I think it's 160 pages. So it's like, it's, it, and it, there was very little editing. Obviously, I didn't do the editing. I don't, it's not something that we'd be recommending to do yourself, but it can be done ex- essentially really quickly. If you, if you've ever done a webinar, I know, Rob, you've done plenty of webinars. If you ever done, if you've done multiple webinars on, say, one core topic but different angles from each, you can take that content and you can get it. You can get it transcribed, lightly edited, and you essentially have a book. Because if people attend your webinar and if you and they love your webinar and they like your content, and I say if it's like evergreen content, it's not stuff that's that can be outdated. Um, if they like it in a webinar, they're going to love it in a book because it's essentially a different format for them to consume it. You can add to it. You can add commentary to it. You can add an introduction to it. A summary to it. And essentially, you get a book done very, very quickly. That's high quality, high content, and uh, people love it. And then the next step, you know, once you've written
0: it, you've got it edited and published. You know, obviously there are tools for setting up, you know, a funnel to, you know, make sure that you're getting it in the right hands, running ads to it. But if that was something that somebody wanted to try out, any other expert tips that you would just throw out in addition to getting the book actually written?
2: Yeah, Dean. I what I did was as when I'm going through this process of say, say for example, we have so say we'll take you for example. So say if you have a you have a couple of webinars on persuasion and advanced copy and things like that and stuff that you're just a magician at. So say you take them and you know that you're going to be putting together something around the whole persuasion, around the whole say copywriting angle. So then you know that that's kind of what the topic is going to be focused around. So then what I would do then is I would run. Uh, book cover tests so I would run ads say with two book covers and I would say with, uh, tell me which one of these covers you would like best so I would have a rough working title so it might be you know the uh, persuasion in the new economy for argument's sake it might be your working title and uh, then I would have two radically different book covers and to be honest neither of them may be the finished one it doesn't it doesn't really matter and what I would do I'd run an ad with the two images saying which one of these book covers do you like best? I'm I'm releasing a brand new book on persuasion and I'm looking for help from the public. Uh, Click here and tell me which ones you like. So they would be brought over to a page where they can vote on which book is best and then say, well, if you'd like a free copy in advance, put your name and email and address in here. So then on the, they'd opt in ahead of, they'd vote first, then they would opt in. And then on the thank you page, I'd let them know well, if you were to buy a book or get a book on persuasion, what else would you like to have in it? This is on our thank you page. And then they would tell me what they would like to see in the book. And I would just go through that, kind of bring it together and make sure the the bulk of what gets repeated from people is included in the book. So then I know when I do release it to the public, I'm giving the public what they want on top of what I think they might want. But you're also building your list as well. And then those people, when the book does go live, we would uh, not just send them the book and say thanks very much. We would send them the book and then offer them a chance to move on to the next stage, maybe getting a strategy session or getting a or getting access to a product if, if it was completely digital or whatever the case may be. But you're building an early bird list, as is what I would call it, ahead of time. But you're also getting valuable feedback from people, so you do know what you're putting into it is the stuff that you should be putting into it.
0: Okay, I like that. I'm I'm definitely stealing that for uh, for my next book. There's no doubt about that. So let's break in here and talk a little bit about a few things that John mentioned so far, Kira, it's been so long since you've been on the podcast, uh, you know, as, as a host or you know, co-host. So let's start with you. What, uh, what jumped <laughs> out at you?
1: I was, you know, I was bummed that I was not there for this particular interview with John. I was really looking forward to it. So I'm glad I could at least listen to it and add some commentary. Um, I, you know, to start with, he had crazy, you're right, crazy stories uh, to the point where I was listening and I had a couple, you know, WTF moments where I was like, what, this is, how is this possible? How did this happen to this man? Um, And that hasn't happened in a lot of our podcast interviews. I think it's just not the content we usually focus on in marketing. Um, But the kidnapping, you know, that definitely stood out to me. Um, and then after being kidnapped, being pulled out by a tide in the water and almost drowning in the water and being helicoptered to the, the shoreline, I mean, it was just stuff that was so bizarre and opposite of marketing. I guess we could always draw a connection to marketing, but it was fascinating. And I really, I was loving, uh, especially at the beginning of this interview. And I wanted to hear more of the crazy stories.
0: Yeah. John writes about some of those in his book, Your Elephants Under Threat, which I misspoke a couple of times uh, and shares a little bit of that stuff. But, you know, you and I have talked a lot about travel and how, you know, be, and we've talked with guests who have traveled and done copywriting, you know, as they've gone, you know, through that uh, that um, location independent kind of thing. We don't hear stories like this very often. Usually they're all, you know, oh, I didn't get great Wi-Fi or, you know, I Struggled to connect with a client because of the time zones or whatever, and so it's kind of interesting to hear these different kinds of stories. There, it sort of reminds me, you know, Rachel Pilcher, who you know was in her think tank a few a year or two ago, and she travels full time as a copywriter and runs her business on the road, and she's always sharing fun stories and and things, you know, in her Twitter feed, and so it it is here. It's fun to hear the weird side of travel as well.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely makes me want to start traveling again. Um, as you and I have discussed, we both miss traveling. I, I know many copywriters do. And so, uh, yeah, it definitely triggers that travel bug in me.
0: It's time to go. Yeah. So one other thing, this, this isn't really a talking point necessarily, but I find it really interesting how many people that we talk to or that become copywriters or marketers uh, tend to come from the fitness industry you know there the people like john todd brown himself you know we interviewed dave Ruel on the podcast a while ago you know he's from that industry uh, um Ryan Lee, you know, they're, they're just, a you know, and then in the broader marketing space, you know, guys like, um, you know, Russell Brunson and, uh, Matt Fury and a lot. So there's something about running a fitness business, I think that forces people to figure out marketing. So, you know, they, there's a bunch of fitness people that are, that are in our industry and, and learn it and then, you know, put those ideas to work for other clients. It's just kind of an interesting thing that kind of stood out to me as I was listening to John.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's such a competitive space that I think you have to understand the marketing principles and and stay up to date and cutting edge on that in order to have a successful business in that space. So it makes sense that it bleeds over into the, the marketing world.
0: Yeah. And then this other, the really big thing that stood out to me is, you know, John started talking about, you know, finding clients, whatever is this thing that you and I have talked about a little bit, but maybe not so much on the podcast. And that is you know, your first job as a copywriter running your own business isn't necessarily getting your website put up it's not even necessarily choosing a niche or choosing your products or whatever it's making a sale it's connecting with a client that you can solve a problem for and figuring out that process so you can do it over and over and all of the other things packages websites you know pitching strategies all you know all of those kinds of things help you do that but the most important thing any of us does is connect with the client and sell a a solution to a problem that they have.
1: Yeah, I actually was just having a conversation with a copywriter right before this in our think tank about the same thing and um, you know her most critical need right now is to get clients, to get work, to get that steady income. And so we just prioritize what's most important. I think it's really easy to get lost in all the marketing stuff. And we were talking about pitching podcasts and all these long-term strategies that do work. They do work, but they don't land those um, quick projects that can put cash in your bank. And so that's most critical when you're just starting out to stay really hyper-focused on how do I get a project? How do I get clients? How do I get paid um, until you hit the point where you have steady income and you have a wait list for the next two weeks and then for the next month, and you have some of that stability That's when your business starts to change and shift into the next phase where you can focus more on the long-term marketing play and focus more on, oh, I wonder how I could create a new revenue stream and start thinking about products and all these fun aspects to our business. But at the beginning, it's not about that. It's just how do I get clients? How do I get paid? How do I get that experience? How do I get those testimonials? And how do I get it quickly?
0: Yeah, There's nothing more important at the beginning of your business than to prove that you can do this thing for somebody besides yourself finding clients is, is critical.
1: Yes. I also, um, it was fun to hear about uh, his relationship, John's relationship with Dan Kennedy and how he had landed uh, working and that opportunity to work with Dan Kennedy. And I hadn't heard that before. So that was what stood out to me was just uh, John's Um, ability to really stand out and to, to continue to try to get Dan's attention as Dan is one of the, you know, busiest successful people in our space and only has a fax machine. John worked through that challenge and figured out, okay, well, this is what will grab his attention and put a ton of time into it too. And that really stood out to me because it just shows that Number one, you have to figure out the creative concept that will grab attention. And number two, you have to do all the legwork and put in the time that most people aren't willing to put in um, in order to actually execute on the creative idea. And as copywriters, most of us come up with tons of creative ideas. That's not the problem, but the execution is where we often fall down, and not with John. He put the time in to actually create that package that he then sent to, sent to Dan Kennedy um, to, to land that position and start talking to them.
0: And we've talked several times about, you know, how do you connect with mentors? How do you get on their radar? That's one way, obviously joining programs that they might offer, in, you know, being in the same room with them is another way, but there's, there's almost nothing that can help move your business forward faster. You know, once you've got the basics in place, then connecting with somebody who can, you know, introduce you to the right people, save you time with shortcuts, help you, you know, not make the mistakes that they made on the way up. And so, you know, are our listeners should be thinking, okay, you know, who are the mentors that I might want to connect with in my industry or within copywriting or within marketing? How do I get their attention? Can I join one of their programs? Can I, you know, figure out some way to, you know, send uh, a shock and awe package, you know, that that includes some of your best work, you know, or maybe a recording or something that you're doing, or do you build a website that hosts, you know, cool videos for them? Like there, are, there are probably thirty or forty different ways that you can do this, but getting people to take notice of you. Uh, is important. And we've been lucky with the podcast that, you know, we've been able to connect with several people on the podcast. You know, that's how we met Brian Kurtz and, and really got uh, to know him and into his group. And that introduced us to, you know, a whole bunch of other people. And, and the the important thing here is like, figure out how to connect with somebody and then just keep, you know, connecting and, and moving through those groups and, and figuring out what the next step is. And I love how John did that in order to get the attention of somebody he wanted to connect with.
1: Yes. And you two talked a lot about his books and um, what it takes to actually ship a book and then how to, how to use it in a funnel. Um, So, you know, Rob, what do you, you have a book? We've talked about books on the show before. Do you think that copywriters would benefit from having a book and where does that fall in our career? Is that something that we should do upfront and early like John did or wait until later?
0: So, as with all the answers we always give, it depends. Uh, I do think the copywriters should have a book. I don't necessarily think that they should have books about copywriting, you know, because so many of us serve niches and we do so much more than just writing words. We're like we said earlier in the introduction, we're solving really big problems for our clients. And so, writing books about marketing in a niche, for instance. So, let's say uh, that I work in the SaaS space. You know, writing a handbook, a marketing handbook for SaaS marketers could be a way to introduce myself to literally hundreds of potential clients. Uh, And if I just wrote a book about copywriting or about marketing that's not focused on that niche, it would be far less successful. And so I do think that books provide a huge opportunity. They're not easy easy to write. It takes time. It takes focus. And then setting up a funnel, you know, like John has, and John has five or six books that he's built funnels for and used them to fill his programs, to, you know, connect with people one-on-one. His funnels are really interesting and you can track them down online if you, if you want to look for them. Um, But you know, having that in place so that when you do need clients, you do need to connect with the next person. You can turn on a couple of ads. You can drive traffic. You know that it's going to work and it's going to generate that interest in your business. I think that can be a game changer. And for the people that we've talked to who have books, you know, people like uh, Robert Scrobe, who you know uses his book to connect with his clients. Um, you know, Laura Gale uh, talked to, uh, about. Um, you know, her book, well, she, we talked to her before she had her book, but her, her book is awesome about writing books. You know, it's all about how do you write this book? That's going to get you a business. And so I do think there's a huge opportunity, something I want to do in our business. Actually, I'd love to have you and I work on a book that then can help, you know, attract people to the things that we want to do.
1: Right. But then I hear that and I'm like, ah, that's so much work, so much time you and I, barely have enough time to do to focus on the priority project. So that's where I usually put the book idea and project off to the side. But what I like that John shared in the interview is that you can kind of bust it out. And he did that, um, I think in a month. Um, and if you can't do that, you can also find where your content currently lives and you and I have a ton of content. So we could take in our podcast interviews where we're interviewed Or we could even take shows that uh, from this current show and turn those into a book, we could choose one of the best ones or maybe the most popular podcast episode um, and turn that into a book and start there and make it easy. It's just, it can feel so overwhelming. And I like that John broke it down and showed an easier way to do it by starting with content that you already have and building it out from there.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, if we were to say, Hey, we want to write a book and we're going to do it all about, you know, building your copywriting business or something starting from scratch, that's a really big job. But if we were to, you know, you or I, or work with somebody who could say, Hey, here are the six, you know, most important things that you've talked about in this topic. Here's the trainings that you've done, you know, in the underground or, uh, you know, in the free Facebook group, we're going to put all of this stuff together that gets us halfway there. And then it's just a matter of editing and tweaking and you know maybe adding some experiences. So who knows we we may have a we may have a book here soon who knows
1: well and if you don't have a podcast um, or you don't have your own course content that you can just transcribe and turn into a book you could just look at where you've published content previously or start booking yourself on other podcasts and talk about different concepts and see which ones are more popular see which ones resonate and then take those guest interviews and transcribe you know, that particular show where you had the most interest or you felt the most excited or most confident in the content you were sharing. Um, I don't think you have to, I don't think you need a podcast or your own course in order to create the book the way that John's talking about it.
0: Yeah, I agree. In fact, I don't think John had that stuff for his first book. I think what he started doing is just talking, you know, like a voice memo or just starting, you know, putting thoughts down. And if uh, writing the book is too complex, you know, opening up a voice memo and talking about a topic for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, and then talking about a related topic for 10 or 15 more minutes would be a good way to get that first draft.
1: Right. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about books for... (laughs) for an entire episode, um, because there's, there's so much to dig into and so much around timing and when it actually makes sense for you and your business and when it doesn't make sense.
0: So if, if you're listening and thinking ah, oh, book funnel will be really cool, you know, Google find one of John's funnels because they yeah. are really good or check out some of the other book funnels that other marketers are doing. There are a bunch of them out there. I'm sure you've seen them, but you know, look at, at what appears to be working, you know, what elements are being repeated in each different funnel. Uh, you know, we, the Todd Brown's E5 book funnel is phenomenal. Uh, You know, we've, we've kind of stepped through that before with a few people and uh, there are lots of examples out there to, uh, to borrow from and use if a book is right for your business.
1: Let's go back to our interview with John and learn about his process for engaging with a new client.
0: Okay, so let's go back to when you were taking on clients. I know you're not doing that currently. Um, you know, so somebody would come through one of your funnels and you would start an engagement. What did that process look like? You know, I, I know you weren't necessarily copywriting for them, although some, some of what you did involves copy for sure. Um, but how did you go through the assessment of what their needs were so that you had you know, that high value problem that you knew how to solve and could help them make progress on that?
2: Yeah, so it all started with like a, like a diagnostic Um, essentially like an application where they would fill out their, you know, what's going on in the business right now, what they'd like to see happening, what's been holding them back from getting there and getting into a little bit more detail then um, from there. And actually, at one stage, um, I had a consulting funnel, so like a a coaching and consulting funnel that actually Russell Brunson reviewed as part of, um, he used to do reviews of funnels and he got um, access to mine through GKIC and he reviewed it. And um, I still have that video from which is pretty cool. But That's one cool. thing that I was doing that, that he kind of pinpointed in his review was I had people pay a deposit before they got on the call with me. And it was just a nominal, I think if I remember correctly, it was like $25 deposit. And that just helped my it helped massively with my show up rate. It reduced the amount of people that I was obviously getting, but they were obviously qualifying themselves as someone willing to pay to get on, which was a good thing. And then when they get on, obviously, regardless of what would happen, I would refund their, their $25 deposit. But once we got on, I'd essentially, it wasn't a sales call because I'm not a salesman. I'll never be a salesman. And I'm not good at sales. Um, it's it's like much like Todd, like, it's like sales... Todd doesn't need to use sales because of what he does with his marketing. I mean, he doesn't need to use sales trickery or things like that. So, but I wasn't, I wasn't a salesman. I generally have a grown-up, adult conversation with someone because we are all adults. And it's like, okay, well, this is what's going on in your business. I recommend we do X, Y, and Z. And is that something you'd like help with? So that was essentially like my, my close, if you want to call it was, would you like help with that? So I would map out like a game plan or what I would recommend him doing based on, my experience based on what I've seen working with the clients I was working with, based on what I built up in my knowledge. And I would say, well, I'd recommend you do X, Y, and Z. Would you like help with that? And then if they said yes, um, fantastic. What I would always, always start to do is initially as part of the plan that I would outline the beginning part of the plan was always the, around the low hanging fruit. So it was always like, well, how can I get this person to win as quickly as possible? Because if I can get them to win early, that's going to build up their their excitement to want to continue work with me because, you know, it's it was important for me, but also important for me to get them to win because not only did I want them to stay working with me because I wanted to genuinely ensure that I could do everything I can to help them. So I'd always say, well, what's the low hanging fruit in the business? And generally speaking, the low hanging fruit was for a lot of the businesses that I was working with, where they weren't communicating enough with their audience. So we could implement some sort of ongoing communication um, process. So they are communicating on an ongoing basis. Like people might have, you know, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 leads in their database and communicate every eight weeks. So it's like, it's just, not, it's just crazy. So we would implement some sort of a campaign under business or some sort of an ongoing process. And then we would look at, okay, well, how effective are you at, say, like how effective are you at X, Y, and Z? So how effective are you with generating leads? Well, I'm, I have no problem generating leads. Well, okay, well, how effective are we converting those leads? Well, that's, not, that's where my issue is. So it's like, well, let's focus in there. Let's try and fix that constraint. So it was all around their, their constraint. And if that meant that they needed a funnel built, and they need a copy, well, then because I brought my expertise and it was me working for them, I would get that done for them. So I would build a funnel for them. I would write a copy for them. I would help them. But I would write scripts for them to do videos or whatever the case is. So it was very much a done-with-you approach, but it was all kind of tailored to their, their particular desire. Some people might, help gener- might need help with getting more leads and not so much converting those leads, and others might be vice versa. So it was all very much tailored. OK, so I can imagine
0: somebody listening saying, OK, I get what John is doing, um, but it's easy for him because he had Dan Kennedy in his back pocket. Um, obviously, that was an accelerator for your business. But do you think you could have done the same thing with your business if you hadn't made those kinds of connections that you did uh, earlier on?
2: To be honest, I think like, the Dan Kennedy thing was huge, but so many people that I work with hadn't heard of Dan Kennedy. So I think it was more huge for me. It gave me confidence to, to go out there, knowing that I'd I'd like. I had like. I built up this expertise, but I'd also had the the kind of in in my back pocket. I had that knowing that someone else had that kind of um, the 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 extra the the confidence in me as well to to kind of endorse me and partner with me and to do that. So it was more of an internal confidence than like I wasn't going out there. Uh, work with me because of Dan Kennedy it was very much I would it was very much look. this is what I have to bring and it was like more of an internal conference. so I, I think absolutely I could have especially like nowadays things are so much different that it's not so much about it's not so much about you it's about the actual person and can you actually get them the result and if you can get them the result um that's all that matters at the end of the day so I I knew I can get them the result and now looking at it now and look if it was me now or someone else now all that matters is the results. So if you can get someone the result, that's all that matters. Whether you've been endorsed by X, Y, and Z, that doesn't matter because you can, you, if you were endorsed by X, Y, and Z, you can't get the result. It's, you're not going to last that long. So it's at the end of the day, it comes down to the results.
0: Yeah, that that makes total sense. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit. You're not doing consulting with, you know, a variety of Clients anymore. You're working exclusively with Todd Brown. You mentioned Todd uh, a couple of minutes ago. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Todd's organization and what that looks like, you know, day to day.
2: So at the minute, I'm the director of marketing for Todd and day to day, like we have we have kind of a number of, we have our flywheel, and our flywheel consists of a number of different things, like acquiring new customers um having conversations, um, um, introducing people to the E5 method via via, whether it's the coaching program or or some other area. And then the the next part of our flywheel is um, you know, getting results, getting people results, and then and then showcasing those results by, you know, generating case studies and testimonials and so on and so forth. So my day to day at the minute is is at the minute, right now, if I'm speaking like right now is focused it around our front end in terms of our new customer acquisition as well as being um, the director of marketing my current focus is there is, is customer acquisition buyer acquisition and at the, we're just actually just before we jumped on the call today I got some ads live for a brand new front end offer that we've just launched and uh, we launched it kind of as a as an early bird to our to 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 part of our list just to see how we would do with it and um, the results were very positive so we've launched it to, to cold traffic today and we've launched this new front end offer for for kind of two particular reasons. So one is that we've and I'm sure you're aware, obviously because you're in our world as well, that we've we've seen a shift lately in terms of um, um, in terms of pay traffic and acquisition and so on and so forth. Obviously, as media costs have been rising. And um, the cost of traffic and the cost of acquiring customer has been rising, specifically in markets like ours, where it is a lot more competitive. And we are working um, working against and working alongside some of the smartest people in the world who are equally as good at what they do. Um, so we, in knowing all that, we've put together this particular front-end offer. It's something that's quite different to what we've done before, but we've engineered it in a way that we it will help us... Um, combat the rising traffic costs, driving the rising media costs and allow us to acquire a significant amount of, of new buyers, new customers at scale.
0: So as you talk about, you know, some of the challenges with acquisitions and especially costs going up, Um, is it even possible for somebody who's just starting out, you know, to compete on Facebook to, you know, find that traffic? And if it is like, what are some of the things that might work for, you know, even a copywriter who's like, okay, I want to start doing something on Facebook in my niche, you know, maybe it's not copywriting writing related, it's, it's directed to my niche. And what are some of the things that they should best practices they should be thinking about um, to make an acquisition funnel actually work at a price that makes sense.
2: For us right now, there's kind of two, Two big things that we're focusing on. Well, I would say three things, but two main things. And maybe I'll mention the the third thing as well. The two big things that we're focusing on right now in terms of acquisition, in terms of um, the rising cost of media, is the offer, the actual offer and the offer components and and how we actually engineer the offer. And the second is um, AOV, so average order value. So how much on average is an order worth to us? Because so many people focus on um, trying to get the traffic for the, you know, the, the cheapest clicks and the, the cheapest traffic and then trying to get their conversion rates sky high when the reality is um, these days conversion rates isn't as as important as it used to be. These days it's more of a vanity metric and what, the, what one should be focusing on is an offer that people will genuinely go crazy for and an offer that is um, structured in a way that people would, when they see the offer, hopefully they're thinking, well, this sounds exactly what I need and I'd be foolish not to get this. And then for after that, if we can engineer an offer that, that is that good, and it's obviously it's no, it's no easy feat, but if we can, the second part of that is trying to is focusing on more on AOV and less on conversion rate. So focusing more on what can we do to increase your AOV? What can we do to have our AOV at a point where uh, we're not worried about the rising traffic costs? Because if your AOV is, is high enough, the rising traffic costs becomes less and less of an issue. So, yeah, so just so I'm clear on this, I know I've heard
0: you and Todd talk about this before. We're more concerned about the um, average order cost l- less, or t- once you've taken out the cost of acquisition, right? And then that number is the number that you're really going after.
2: Yeah, so as, as Todd talks a lot about, there's, there's three levels of acquisition. There's level one where from your paid advertising, you're look to, looking to make a profit. And from level two is you're looking to break even. So if you spend $1,000, you make $1,000. And then level three is where you don't mind Um, going in the red a little bit you don't mind going negative to acquire customers so you may you may spend a thousand dollars and you may make back 750 on day zero but then you know on day seven day 14 day 30 day 19 so on as a fort that will that that order value that lifetime value will start to go up so so like generally speaking we recommend people operate from a front end point of view at um at level two so we look try to break even, and how you break even is that say if your cost per acquisition if it's costing you two hundred dollars to acquire a customer, um you have to engineer your offer and your funnel off. And when I say offer, that might include the the initial offer, your bump upsell one, possibly upsell two if you have two upsells and so on and so forth. You should try and engineer as best you can engineer that that initial offer and funnel to to have a an average order value of two hundred dollars as well, which obviously is is very hard to do on a on something like a $7 product or a $17 product. To have an AOV, to, to get your AOV to $200 is very difficult. Um, whereas on a, an initial offer, say if there's a copywriter who's looking to create an initial front-end offer to acquire customers or to acquire buyers, um, I would have something probably these days in and around the you know minimum, I would say... 49, 59, 69, possibly even up around the like the $97 mark. Because if your front end offer is $97, um, you know, with 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 a really savvy bump and a and a really solid upsell one, you can you, you could have your AOV north of two hundred very, very quickly with a with a good upsell and or sorry with a with, with a at a, around that price point. So if you think about it from from those, that respects especially these days with the rising traffic costs, it's um it's something that we're putting a lot of focus on around the offer, making sure offer hits certain things. And um, then from there making sure AOV is where we need to be. Because if our AOV is where we need it to be, as we scale and as we spend more money, the we're like initially we may be at a initially from a from a launching point of view because because we're focusing on AOV, we can be less and less worried about the rising traffic costs and more and more focused around dialing in the actual offer and dialing in the AOV and, and scaling it as much as possible. So
0: I I can see two ways that copywriters can use the stuff that you're talking about. Number one, obviously, we work with clients who are selling products or selling you know, um, coaching packages, that kind of stuff. And so helping them create funnels like that, you know, to, uh, to get people in, uh, at an AOV that makes sense, you know, is a pretty easy thing to see, but what about a, a copywriter that wants to use this for themselves and they maybe don't have a product, uh, that, you know, they're not necessarily selling a course or, you know, maybe, the, you know, if they do, it's maybe a template pack or something, but what they're really trying to sell is the service or, um, you know, maybe you could call it coaching, but it's really you know, like, I want to, you know, write your sales page, or I want to, you know, create all the support materials for your launch, you know, over the next two months. Does this kind of a funnel work for that as well? Or would you change it up in some way uh, in order to bring in the, the right kinds of clients for that?
2: I mean, I my my personal um, default would always be to acquire the customer and then ascend. Now, I'm not saying you can't go out there and have a campaign where you do like a strategy session model or a webinar model and where at the end they apply to become a client and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that can't work. It absolutely can work. It still works. It does work. Um, But my, my default will be, well, what can I create for them that would, that, that would have them be happily take out their credit card to buy. And then from there, what's the next logical step? How best can I move them into becoming a client from there, whether it's a, And whether it is a discovery call or whether it's it's something else, but my default would be to acquire buyers first. Yeah.
0: Okay. So uh, I'm curious, you know, you obviously had a really successful business. Uh, You're doing a lot of great things and then you decided to go in-house working with someone. Tell us about that thought process and why that might be the kind of thing that other people would want to consider doing as well.
2: And for me, it was, it was relatively straightforward. It was getting the, and like, there was only one, and I don't know if Todd will watch this or re- or listened to this. Um, I hope he does. But it, it, for me, there was the only one reason why I considered it. it was because it was Todd, and it was because getting to work alongside someone who had learned so much from someone who had looked up to, someone who I was in essentially in awe from a marketing point of view. And it was just for, it was like a no brainer. It would give it was going to give me the opportunity to to flex my own marketing muscles alongside Todd, and to to grow alongside a team, which was, which was something that I wasn't. Verse two. So um, when I was me on my own, it was me on my own. I I had a couple of um, admin guys working with me, but it was essentially me running the business, essentially me doing everything and so on and so forth. So getting the opportunity to not only work work uh, in a in a team environment and grow a company as a team, but getting to work alongside Todd and and everyone else from there was just going to be huge. And like getting to be around everything that that Todd brings to the table in terms of his own insane experiences insane marketing knowledge his insane ability to 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 attract and to do what he does from a direct response point of view and what he has done from a direct response point of view but also that everything else that 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 comes from that like the the guys that Todd, just be around like the people in top one, like yourselves, these superstar people to be around those people to me, it was like, a, it was going to be a no brainer. It was going to level up me, but also allow me to help those people in, um, in any way I can.
0: And speaking of that, you know, in the time that you've been working with Todd are there, you know, two or three huge takeaways uh, that uh, you're, you're willing to share, you know, from that experience.
2: Like every, every Tuesday we have a training with Todd and it's like, it's, it's by far my favorite part of the week because Todd goes so deep into areas and, you know, and his talk process around copy around messaging around offers and everything else is just unlike anything I've seen. And like that, that, that those Tuesdays are fantastic. But if I was to choose one thing from, from being around Todd and everything else, especially from a copy point of view, because we are, you know, copywriters and this is, we're, this is going out to copywriters. It would be the idea of um, softening our copy, which might sound strange. It might sound so, menial or or you know tiny or whatever but the the fact that these days there are so many people making claims or so many people shouting louder promises and there's so many people you know claiming to do x y and z and making all these absolute statements statements on how to do x without y and all this kind of stuff but making general absolute statements the idea of softening the copy to me um, and I've seen it working is that it's just it's huge and so instead of making absolute statements It may be like the perfect example. The example that comes to mind is we have a a front end offer called the offer bundle. Todd's um, essentially got his training on how to construct an offer and multiple other trainings that go with it in terms of how to uh, decrease your abandon rate, how to increase your AOV, how to um, decrease refunds and increase um, lifetime value, all bundled into one training. But the main headline, if you go to the sales page for it, doesn't say that um, this is the easiest way on earth to make sales from your marketing. It's phrased as a question. It's like, could this be the easiest way on earth to make more money from your marketing and or make more sales from your marketing? Question mark. It's like it's still very, very strong copy but it's softened. It's like, it's it's more believable. And I think these days, because there's so much hype and nonsense out there, the idea of softening your copy and making it more believable and making it less in your face is something that there's going to be a shift towards more and more as we continue and more and more people come onto the scene. I like
0: that. So what's next for you, John, you know, as you look into the future, the next, you know, three to five years, obviously you're not looking to leave Todd. At least I don't think you are. I, and if you were, I wouldn't ask you that anyway. But, um, you know, what's next for you in the business and where are you going from here?
2: So next to here is the, well, again, my main, main focus at the minute from from our marketing team point of view, because we do have a marketing team. We do have guys working on different areas of the business is um, is focusing more on the front end and dialing in our front end. And at the minute it's it's focusing on the you know dialing in our AOV for our new front end offer. But from there, it's um we're we're all about one thing from a from a company point of view. We're all about helping entrepreneurs and we're all like we say that we're like and it kind of sounds cliched, um, especially for me being from Ireland and we're very much uh we're very much to the point, but like we have a marketing company, but we're, the, the business that we're really in is, help, is helping changing lives. Like we're helping entrepreneurs every single day change change their lives. Going out there, who, in my mind, who are genuinely the most important people on the planet. The guys that the guys and gals that go out there and strive to do great things in their business with no backing from the government, with no backing, no safety nets, and everything else. Guys that are out there every single day, risking their lives, risking their their families' lives, risking everything to go out there and succeed. And more often than not, they're doing it while helping others as well. To me, that's huge. And to our companies, that's huge. And we just want to continue to help more entrepreneurs, help more business owners grow, grow, grow. Because as more business owners grow, um, everything just flourishes from there. So that's
1: the end of our interview with John Mulry. Before we go, there were a couple of other things that stood out to us that we want to highlight. Rob, what stood out to you?
0: So as I asked John about his process of working with clients, you know, he talked about having that first call. It was really a diagnostic of what's going on in the business. And, you know, we've talked a lot about what that sales call ought to look like, but I think. Thinking of it as a diagnostic, almost like you know, you're going to the copywriting doctor, or you're going to the marketing doctor, and you're saying these are the things that are wrong with my business, at least your client is, and going through that diagnostic process to find the low-hanging fruit, to figure out where you can make the biggest impact. I think that that's uh, a nice um, reframing of what a sales call really ought to be. So it's it's not focused on, hey, I'm you know an awesome copywriter and I helped you know, Rob and Kira write this and I helped this client do this other thing and it was a 10X, whatever. Um, really focusing on diagnosing what's going on in your client's business is, is a nice way to look at what that uh, interest call or sales call ought to ought to be.
1: Yeah, it's just so simple and it, it feels so achievable for me when I think about his process. And, you know, I think we overcomplicate it, but I love how he just keeps it simple with the actual... Diagnostic and then, hey, like this is what's going on in your business, and just flat out telling your client, like, here's what I see. And then leading into the sale by saying, Would you like help with that? I think that's such a powerful question. Would you like help with that? And, you know, John mentions that he's not naturally a salesperson. And so this proves that you can build in a sales process, even if sales is not your strong suit and you just, you know, possibly don't even like it. This is a script and a process that can work for all of us. And it just feels really natural too, right? It doesn't feel like, oh, I have to jump on the sales call. It's like, no, I just have to tell them what's wrong and offer to help with it. It's just a reminder that once again, we're problem solvers and John built his process around being a problem solver.
0: I also like that he charged up front for people to get on the call, even though it was a minimal amount, you know, just, you know, 25 pounds or 25 euros or whatever, and it's fully refundable. So once the call's over, he's either going to apply that to, you know, the next project, or he's going to give it back to the person. It does uh, cull, you know, the looky-loos, the people who, you know, don't aren't really serious about a business and just want to talk to you, it just gets a more serious potential client on the line. And I think it's a really smart thing that maybe I'll start adding to you know, my interest calls as well.
1: Yes. Okay. What else stood out to you, Rob?
0: So I asked John about, you know, his relationship with Dan Kennedy and whether he thought that that helped. And he he said he didn't. I mean, obviously it did help him, but not in the way that I was thinking. And, uh, you know, as I was thinking about that, I'm like, that's kind of the way certifications work for us. You know, a lot of people are really interested in certifications and they put those badges on the website or whatever. I've certainly got badges on my website. Uh, Lots of copywriters do that. But that certification is less important to the client and more important to us in giving ourselves permission to step into this expert role, you know, to solve bigger problems. And so I'm not saying that that we shouldn't put those things on our websites, but uh, the purpose of these kinds of relationships, certifications, that kind of thing is really about us stepping into a larger, bigger role where we can solve bigger problems, work with better clients and earn more money, so just another connection that sort of went off in my brain after we were talking.
1: Okay, and I I really love how John shared the changes that um, he's made, and uh, you know, with Todd Brown's team and the company around softening copy. And so, I th- that was a small detail, and you you didn't cover it for that long. It was at the end of the interview, but I thought it was really interesting that as the space gets more competitive and as it shifts. Um, that that's a change this highly successful company is making as well. And, um, and I like the examples he shared around uh, adding questions instead of saying, you know, this is what you're dealing with, or this is what you are. uh, This is the solution for you, but adding more intriguing questions that are more an invitation for the reader to kind of say, well, yeah, I am dealing with that. Um, and make it more believable and so that's something that stood out to me because you know if Tom Brown is doing it and his team's doing it uh, then that's certainly something I want to pay attention to in our own marketing for the copywriter club and for the work I do with my clients.
0: yeah I agree I think it's a reflection of what's happening in the broader marketing world where that really intense heavy pushy marketing uh, it still works I'm not going to say it doesn't work but uh, it it, turns people off as well. And I think there's, you know, a better way we don't necessarily have to step away from the stuff that works and say, oh, that, that stuff, you know, is awful or horrible, but we can change our approach so that, uh, you know, we're not pushing things on people. We're not trying to uh, convince them of things, but through the art of persuasion, we're helping people see for themselves where the opportunities are, what the possibilities may be and letting them persuade themselves or, you know, make those decisions. And so that less pushy marketing thing, I think is something that we're going to see more and more of, uh, at least until it stops working and something else, you know, we need to try something else.
1: And John shared the Todd Brown flywheel and what he's focused on, uh, within the company, the, you know, the priorities. And again, it's simplifying what we all do in our own businesses, but I, I like how he broke it down because it does make this really simple path. This is what we should all focus on, whether we're a larger company um, or we're just, you know, a solopreneur it's acquisition, creating conversations, which are really sales conversations, teaching and sharing, you know, for him, it's the E five method, but for us, it's our own methodology or our own, you know, our own X factor and sharing that and then getting results for our clients so that we can share those results. And when he broke it down like that, I was like, "Ah, oh, this is, like it's so obvious and easy, but again, I feel like we overcomplicate it. And this is really what we need to do on repeat to get the marketing engine running. And, and those results are a key part of it too. We can't forget about that last piece, getting our clients results, because if that's not working, then the whole marketing engine starts to fall apart.
0: Yeah. The other part of that, that John was talking about that I think Uh, maybe we skip over a lot because we get hung up on things like conversion rates and click-throughs and that kind of thing. And John basically said the only numbers that they focus on are the average order value and whether that is more or less than the cost of acquisition, you know, so that's what you're spending on ads or whatever. And if that number is even and you can make money, you know, on the back end, or it's positive so that you're making money, you know, from day one, you've got a decent business. And if that number is negative, then you might be in trouble one last thing that I'll say about that part of the interview, you know, as you listen to somebody who's successful, like John, he's got multiple book funnels. He's got clients coming to him. He's helping. And then he leaves to go join another company. Oftentimes we'll see people talking about it in the free Facebook group. You know, it's like, I'm thinking about going in house they even sometimes talk about how that represents a failure because they weren't able to make it as a freelancer. And I, I think it's a validation that there is not one right way to be a copywriter. You know, you can do it on your own as a freelancer. You can do it in house with another team. You can do it in the agency world. Uh, You know, there there are definitely more than one way to succeed in this, and none of them are a failure if they're meeting the needs that you have. And John left to learn from people who are as smart or maybe even smarter than him. He's adding to his skill set. If someday he decides to, you know, move on to something else, um, it's just another win and not necessarily a retrenchment from a failure uh, moving forward. And so anybody who's thinking about going in-house or working as a copywriter in a different capacity than What we normally focus on here, uh, that's not a failure. It's oftentimes a step forward and a big success.
1: Yeah. And that could even mean just forming partnerships or working and building your own team. Or, um, you know, for the two of us, like I learn a lot from working with you, Rob, and from working with our team members. And so um, I get a ton of education just in our day to day here. And for any copywriter that maybe feels like, They are interested in learning more from peers or other experts, but they're not quite ready to join another company. You could just look at who you're hiring or collaborating with on projects. Are you learning from your colleagues and your peers? And how, if not, how could you bring that into your company so that every day you're learning from your your colleagues and, um, and you're getting paid to do it too?
0: Yeah, I love that. And obviously, John is all about learning, growing, building. So that's something I admire about him. We want to thank John Mulry for sharing his time with us. If you want to connect with John, the best way to do that is to send John an email, john at marketingfunnelautomation.com, or you can find him occasionally hanging out in the MFA Facebook group. If you reach out to him on Facebook, though, be sure to tag him in your comment um, because he doesn't see everything that happens in that group. And you can find several of John's books on Amazon. Some of them are priced really affordably. So we encourage you to look there. We'll link to those in the show notes as well for this episode at thecopywriterclub.com.
1: That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave your review of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copywriters coming
0: together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can yes. make you lots of money.